It is said that in the great uh, missionary um, season, the great missionary movement of several hundred years ago, that um, some from other religions would come to the Christian missionaries and say, it is not fair. You are, you have too good a message and you are singing them and you are celebrating them into the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because, brothers and sisters, the message is the same today as it was 2,000 years ago. Christ is risen. He's risen from the dead. And that's true today. And that's why the hymn guides us to sing. Good Christian men rejoice and sing. Now is the triumph of our King. To all the world glad news we bring. Hallelujah. The Lord of life is risen for a Bring flowers of song to strew his way and let all mankind rejoice and say hallelujah. Praise we in songs of victory that love, that life which cannot die and sing with hearts uplifted high. Hallelujah. Your name we bless, O risen Lord, and sing today with one accord the life laid down, the life restored. Hallelujah. Brothers and sisters, on a day as beautiful as this, is there anything better that you can be doing than singing hallelujah to the risen King? Our passage for today will be coming from Hebrews chapter 12. You can turn there if you would like. I will read it for you. It's only a couple verses. It goes like this. But you have now come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Brothers and sisters, as we get to that, I want to remind you of this passage. This is Luke's account of some of the first encounters that God's people had with Jesus on the day of the resurrection. I will read verses 1 through 12. Listen, just listen. Just listen. Beginning, with verse, beginning in chapter 23. On the Sabbath day, which was Saturday, they rested according to the commandment. But... On the first day of the week, is which is which we are celebrating today, at early dawn they went to the tomb taking the spices that they had prepared 
and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third, and on the third day rise. They remembered his word, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them, typical of us, isn't it, an idle tale. And they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. The women came back. They were in that room. They spoke unbelievable things because bodies don't rise from the dead. And Peter rose and ran. It's intriguing. I wanted to remind you of that. Father, as we come to this, your word, grant us your spirit that like Peter, we may hear and believe and not dismiss the news of Jesus' resurrection as mere idle tales of deceived and weak women. But may we know that the cosmic order has changed by the resurrection of your son, Jesus. For we pray it in his name. Amen. So my question to you is this. What sorts of news make you get up and run? Think about it. It's a serious question. It's not an idle question to be dismissed easily. What kind of news causes you to get up and run? Fire! Well, not that one. <laughs> Try what? Sobbies. Or... Grandma and Grandpa are here. Yay! It's your birthday. That'll get you up and running. Or, my favorite, it's the mail truck. Depending on the day, that'll get me running to the mailbox or away from it. In all seriousness, what 
makes you get up and run. Whether it's in eager excitement or in terror, what makes you get up and run? For what makes us get up and run says a lot about who we are and what's important to us. We find ourselves getting up and running into the presence of the living King to behold his glory and to worship. Or would we prefer to get up and run to the latest concert that's coming through town? What causes you to get up and run? Why did Peter? It's almost rude the way it unfolds, but Peter rose and ran. He didn't have time to enter into this idle conversation with these other disciples who were dismissing the women. If the women came back and said, Jesus rose, he got up and he ran. It's almost as though the women are thrown against the wall as Peter wrestles his way out of the room. Why? And he says, Peter ran to the tomb. Why? Remember, this is the guy who had just 48 hours before denied Jesus. This is the one who at every turn missed Jesus' point. This is the one who at every turn resisted Jesus' point. This is Peter. Dude, if Jesus rose from the dead, that means he's coming to get you. Run for the hills. Run for your life. Which, of course, is exactly what Peter did. This is passionate and fearful Peter who rose and ran. Why? To understand, we have to remember first that Peter was a good Jewish boy. He knew his Bible. And he knew the promise that the Bible related. It's a promise that we reflected on last week. You remember? You remember the problem which provides the context within which the promise came. The problem is our ever-deepening, ever-widening cycle of suspicion and accusation and judgment and tyranny and self-exaltation. We've discovered over the course of our weeks together, together a pattern of feeling and thought and word and deed that we've inherited from and so share with Adam and Eve and Cain and Lamech and his descendants and finally the people of Babel. We've been watching as that story unfolded in the first part of Genesis. And then if you continue to read the history of God's people on through the rest of the Pentateuch, into Joshua, into Judges, and into the history of Israel, we realize that 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 spirit that we share together with Adam and Eve and Cain and all the others plays out in every direction and at every dimension of our lives. Feeling, thought, word, and deed. And it's into this boiling cauldron. 
It is into this boiling cauldron of personal and interpersonal, national and international chaos that the promise now comes. Leave the promise declared and go. Leave what you know. Go to a place that I will later show you. Leave and go. For I will. You remember this? I will. The great I am. The great covenant maker, covenant keeper God who met them at at Sinai later. That great I. I will give you a name. I will give you a house. I will give you a nation. Abraham had just been with and living in and among a great number of people who were content and intent on building a city. But the great I am comes and says, I will give you a nation that will make that city look like small potatoes, replacing it, transcending it, transcending the the wildest imagination of your best thinkers. God's city will be so glorious that it will appear to us as a very nation. That's the promise that Peter had grown up on. It was the milk that he drank. It was the water he drank. It was the food he ate. It was the air he breathed. That was the promise. And so when he got word, 48 48 hours after those tragic events of that Good Friday, that Jesus rose from the dead, he went in this mind-boggling mix of terror and excitement. Is it so? Is it so? Is it so? Or is this just another lie? And he discovered. It's so! What does that mean? And Peter understood If it's true that Jesus is no longer in the tomb, if it's true that he rose from the dead, then everything that has ever been promised is now true. It's now real. It's here. The I will has become I did. And Peter, of all people, knew it. And that's why we come to the passage that is printed in your bulletin. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 22 through 24. But you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God. You, it's not you will come one day, I promise, because the promise is already fulfilled. You have come. 
For the first ten chapters, the writer to the Hebrews, which some believe to be Peter himself, has been arguing that by the life, by the perfect life and the perfect sacrifice and righteousness of Jesus, by faith, chapter 11, recognizing it and resting in it as the reality that it is, Chapter 12, we have come. Did you see that? It's a long and detailed argument that in some goes like this. It starts with, in days past the Lord has spoken, but in these last days he has spoken by, his, by Jesus. And it goes like this, by the life and the perfect life, the perfect sacrifice, the perfect righteousness of Jesus. The promise has become reality. Brothers and sisters, it is not some distant thing. It is an accomplished thing in which we live and breathe today. What is it? You have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God. You remember that we, had, we were committed to building a city to our own glory and for our own legacy. But the great promise of God's grace and abounding love is that I will make for you a great city. And now the writer of the Hebrews is saying, here it is, a city so great. It's not even just a city-state, it's a city-nation. But not only so, it's a home. You have come to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem the assembly of the firstborn. It's not just as God had promised David that he was building a house. He was building a home for you and for me. Because ever since the days of the garden, we have been exiled from our own home. Our welcome and belonging place with a holy God. It's the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, his dwelling place, the assembly of the firstborn. Brothers and sisters, by faith, look around you and understand the reality in the midst of which now you sit. At this moment, in this place, behold the assembly of the firstborn to which now you have come by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Look. Look. Not just to the people who are sitting next to you, but to the people that you have carefully avoided on the other side of the room. Look. But you have come not only 
to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, the assembly of the firstborn. You have come to Jesus. The mediator of a new covenant whose sprinkled blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What was the blood of Abel crying for? It was crying for justification and vindication. It was crying for justice. I have been wronged. Make it right, O living God. How is it that Jesus' blood speaks of something better than that? Because, brothers and sisters, if you and I were to receive the justice that we always clamor for when it comes to others, but always resist when it comes to us, then we would be dead. The blood of the new covenant speaks not only of the justice of God, but the justice of God exercised in stunning tenderness for his notorious and sworn enemies, you and me. He gave to Jesus the justice that you and I deserve and gave to you and I the life that Christ deserved. It doesn't seem fair, except that God made a promise and he kept it. We've come to a city, we've come to a home, we've come to a name. Several weeks ago, I think I actually used this as an illustration even just a couple weeks ago, but I was looking on, um, on YouTube, scanning there was th these various and sundry videos, and there's several videos like this. But there's this one video that captured my attention. It's this video taken of a stepdaughter handing to her stepdad on his birthday a manila envelope. And as he opens it and he pulls out reams and reams of paper, it seems, it dawns on him that what his stepdaughter has given him is the, the papers to formalize and finalize her adoption. She signed them all. And she's saying, will you sign them? And he explodes with joy. He explodes in dance. And then he collapses at the kitchen table. And he puts his head down and he weeps uncontrollably. Dude, it's not like you got a new car. You got papers. Woohoo. And papers you have to file in some bureaucrat's office. Why the reaction? After all, think about it. She had been his stepdaughter already for years. He had been her stepdad already for years. She was already a welcome part of the household. He already rejoiced with her when she rejoiced. And he wept with her when he, she wept. She already was welcome to his table to have anything in his house that she wanted. What's the big deal? It's just a piece of paper. She was now formalizing the father 
daughter relation. Now was she not only a welcomed guest at the table, she was the daughter of the father at the table. She bore his name. She became a co-heir now with her siblings of all that he possessed. Looking from the outside, it appears that nothing changed, but everything had changed. It's as though by the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, our promised adoption has now been formalized and has now been finalized and has now been finished because that's the promise. I will make for you a great name, and by the way, it's my name. I will make for you a great city, and by the way, it's my city. I will make for you a great home, and by the way, it's my home, at the center of which is my table. Come and eat. Now we are members together with Jesus in his house. We're not just welcome guests. We now belong at his table. We're not imposters. We now bear his name. And he's not ashamed for the public to know that we are his children. Now we are heirs together with him of all things glorious, whether in heaven or on earth. Because brothers and sisters, that's what the resurrection means. Is anyone listening to me? Can I hear an amen? And so we come to a feast. Some of you have noted that I have skipped a phrase. To the innumerable angels in festal gathering. These angels have come dressed for a feast, which is the root of the word. It's the root of the word in English as well as the root of the word in Greek. It's a gathering, a citywide, a nationwide gathering to celebrate the victory of the king. And this is no small deal. This is not, this is not um, frozen burgers. This is not store-bought brats. Brothers and sisters, all stops are pulled. It's a nationwide the, the, the first room of the arriving kingdom and laid out before us is all manner of appetizers of the feast, the final stages of which, of the final preparations of which are being done even as we speak. After all, think about it. We went camping last week. And um, for, I, I don't know, it, it feels like um, about a year and a half before we went camping, um, one of my children, um, who I will not name, but one of my children was, I'm so excited, we get to go camping! And then uh, five minutes later, we're going camping! And then about three minutes later, we're going camping! Does anybody know? We're going camping! Every day, for what felt like a year and a half. Yes, yes, yes! We're going camping. Which warmed my heart because I'm the only other one in our family who loves to camp, it seems. 
And so we have been ushered in to the anteroom of the arriving kingdom. Because as we know, the full enjoyment of a feast is at least as much in the anticipation of the feast as in the participation of it. So taste, taste and see the goodness. Go ahead. Make your way around the anteroom. Taste and see. The Lord's Supper, taste and see of his goodness in baptism. Taste and see of his goodness in the assembly of the saints. Taste and see of his goodness in the gathering together of his people for prayer 24-7. Taste and see the sweetness of his forgiveness that we receive from Jesus and participate in with one another. Taste and see his love. Taste and see that you belong. Taste and see his peace and his hope and his joy. Taste and see all of this on the rich day that we call the Lord's day that he has given for us to participate in the fullness of that reality, even as we anticipate its perfection. So Peter understood. When he heard the news that Christ is risen, he said, what? And he rose and he ran. Because the kingdom had come. God's will was being done upon the earth, even as it is in heaven. And so it is to this day. So when you hear the news that Jesus rose again, do you rise and run? Do you rise and run to the empty tomb? Or do you rise and run from the empty tomb? Where do you run? When you hear the news. Some of us are so flabbergasted by the news that we rise and we run in all kinds of directions. We run to our retirement account. We run to our work. We run from relationship to relationship, from church to church. But we don't run to the tomb to behold that our king, according to the promise, has risen from the dead. My prayer is that together with Peter, we would grow to recognize that when we hear that news, it means everything has changed. So, Father, strengthen us as your spirit has promised and as Paul prayed to hear the news and to believe it and to rise up and run.